Welcome back. This is Andy, and we're still here doing the Milpa. There's no Milma. Milpa, like Daddy Mill. Got them Warbucks, you know. United States and Central America. Only good things happen then. Right. Okay. So tell us more about the Milpa system. For folks that didn't tune into our previous episode, go check that out. And we started this episode and we realized it was going to be way too long. So now it's a it's a two-parter. Yeah, there was no intro. We didn't write an intro. So no. we just had to chop this episode in half and we're going to start right in the middle. So if you're kind of confused, check out part one. And uh, do you want to dive in with more cheesy banter for an intro or do you want to love my cheese it's like the thick stinky french cheese get these people the information that they're looking for they're looking for the information about milpas because they're listening to it so do you, you just want to you want to deliver the goods yeah let's let's deliver that good good so if you haven't caught the previous episode we talked a bit about specifically the lacandones in the western part of chapas and a little bit about their Sweden agricultural system, which is just based on this concept of planting things and letting the natural succession of the forest take over. So we're going to pick up where we left off, where we had outlined basically what a milpa is. And we've been starting to dive in a little bit deeper on exactly what that looks like. Okay, so the last episode, just to bring everybody up to speed, we started back in the Ice Age, like Andy normally likes to do. Just a squirrel trying to get a nut. Yeah, always is, right? And then we talked about the change in climate and the elevation and precipitation and some of the intensive management with the slash and burn tech, as well as how plots are chosen, worked, and valued in accordance to the cycles of nature and the virtues of humans in their 30 sisters method or whatever the hell I was talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of sisters in this one. Given what we've talked about, that you have this giant diverse system of plants, it provides these really great yields of a bunch of different plants throughout the year. But what's really important about this is that a system this complicated requires both more labor and skill than like even like a three sisters method or monocultures or whatever, because it needs a, a thorough knowledge of understanding the relationships between plants, planting schedules, requirements for things like sunlight and all those other management techniques that go into anyone's garden. Part of it is that they also intensively weed the milpas as often as once a week. And like I'd said before, some of the weeds that they pull up are dried and used as an organic soil amendment, while other ones are put off to the side. And throughout the year, those weeds plus small branches and various crop residues are basically accumulated in small piles and then burned periodically. This results in getting extra ash and charcoal, which can then be spread over the field. Most weeds that are pulled out or cut are not burned, but left in the field to decompose as that green manure, but the thicker stemmed types of weeds are primarily what's used for that burning. Now, these practices provide a continuous supply of organic matter, and paired with the biochar from all the chopped down stuff that's too big for burning in this sense, where you're burning it on such a small scale, but not big enough for like a fire for cooking and things like that, that ends up becoming biochar, and the result is basically this really anthropogenic soil that's been enriched because of these management methods, similar to what you might see like the terra preta of the Amazon that people talk about quite a bit. Yeah, and I know you were super excited to talk about biochar, but the more you reference it, the more I keep thinking it's talking about fish. Yeah, the biochar. Come on, got to get on that char game. Yeah, you played that joke out last episode. Fine. You're the one that brought it up. If you didn't want me to uh, talk about my 
my beautiful fish. I said biochar. You just ran with it. Sir. To go back to what we were talking about with the biochar, the bigger branches, but too small for like firewood. It's really important to understand that when we talk about making biochar, you need to have temperatures over a thousand degrees. So you have to have both a buildup of materials to use in order to make the fire, as well as the materials themselves that you're burning in that fire to get them over that temperature. That process is not super complicated, but it's something we'll dedicate an episode to in sometime in the future. So obviously the slow burn that they're doing to clear the fields is not going to be hot enough. And that comes with its own benefits. We had talked about a bit the black material that's added back into the soil that also benefits the soil, but isn't biochar. So it's just ashes. Yeah. No, no, no fish piles. I mean, there could be giant fish piles. That would make it biochar. That would make it the very special biochar, yes. One of the things we had talked about in the previous episode is the relationship with the milpa and the animals that live around the site, in that there's a portion of the crops that's expected to be lost and it's planned to be lost. Part of the corn harvest specifically is actually purposefully allotted to wild animals like deer and squirrels and pacas and even a bunch more which in turn ultimately provide the farmer in the community with necessary meat protein. So the farmer really figures out what part of the corn crop he wants to basically give to the wild animals by leaving the corn stalks undoubled in one part of the milpa. So what that does is it allows the corn stalk that isn't doubled to be more easily knocked over and things like that. So he's not wasting two planted seeds, he's wasting one to feed the wild animals. So like animals like raccoons will climb the stalks and their body weight will just pull them right to the ground where the corn can really easily be eaten and ultimately where they can easily be hunted. According to the modern Lacandone farmers, leaving food easily available for these animals actually decreases overall crop losses in the remaining sections of the milpa. So there's a section that's basically like bait for hunting wildlife as well as like a sort of shrinkage protocol for the plants eaten by animals anyway? Yeah, and they didn't even get an MBA. So why protect it, then cut it down and bring it somewhere else to lure wildlife to hunt when you could just leave it in place? So I'm imagining like a Disney-like cafeteria where people and animals dine together and whistle while they work. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. It's baiting and gathering. Think smarter, not harder. I do want to back up a little bit, which is a bad habit of mine. But I think it's kind of necessary to try to figure out what the hell's going on. There's two slightly different paths that we've kind of glossed over that changes how the milpa is managed. I love how you preface that with, you want to go back just a little bit. How far back are we going this time? Like 50,000 years ago. No, I'm just kidding. We had mentioned that farmers traditionally like to choose the regrowth sites over the primary sites. One of the reasons is that with the primary forests, the species and the tropical weeds start to try to begin reseeding in the milpa's open and undisturbed soil a few weeks after the plot's burned. These plants can really sprout quickly in milpa's cut from regrowth and require even more intensive weeding as crops grow. In contrast to this, primary forest milpas, that is the ones that have been repeatedly used throughout um, recent memory, you could say, require less weeding under until about the third or fourth year of cultivation. This, on top of the lower labor requirements to clear these sites, leads farmers to usually just cultivate the milpa plots on those regrowth forests. And even in those milpa plots, they'll usually harvest for like two years, then a follow year where they'll 
burn and try to essentially restart the clock. While there's still some minerals in the soil, it hasn't it doesn't need to go completely fallow and go through that succession process. And in this process, they're able to add some of the biomass from what takes over after two years. And so this is the glorious return of the fire beavers, I believe. Did you just say fire beavers? I would never say that. Why would you even ask that? Like Justin, the fire beaver. Are you you're going to try to start this up now? I don't know. You put in mental images? What kind of mental images are you getting? Like Black Block Bieber Beaver? Not the Bieber fever anyone wanted, but the Bieber fever everyone needed? Like burn them all to ash? Yeah, a band of Black Block Bieber Beavers bringing the fever. This needs to stop. You mean never stop. Don't stop believing. I wish I knew any of his songs. He's got that song like Baby, right? When did that song come out? I don't know. It's like a hip song. It's like 15... I think I saw it on like a Now album on TV once, right? It's got to be 15 years ago, maybe. You sure? No. This is ridiculous. The 4B revolution stops. This is ridiculous. Fine. I get it. I can't can't do this anymore. So what comes after in the Milpas? What comes after the burnings and the corn production is done? That's when they go on to the successional part of things? So at that point, we've basically gone through that fallowed Milpa known generally in lowland chapas as the Akawal, which is basically a second land use category that's really important for Lacandon productive activities. The term that they use that's traditional is Pakchekol, which basically means planted tree milpa and is an entirely different understanding of utilizing the resources that come from the site. Think more like orchard garden. In addition to the variety of trees and other plants that are deliberately seeded and planted and is maintained in that Akawal, they also encourage and harvest a number of wild species, things that have since then become more popular, things like pineapple, goyabana, anato, canna lily, rubber, oranges, figs, avocados, and that's just naming the ones that are going to be the most obvious to people listening. So as you can see, the milpa isn't really abandoned, it's not really fallowed, It still contributes significantly to the cropping system because it provides fruit, rubber, and a bunch of other things. It's important to keep in mind the climate that we're talking about. This is someplace where inconsistent rainfall can reduce things like corn yields by like 50% year over year. So having this is an incredible buffer against having like famine. Hey, thanks for listening. You know, one of the weird things about podcasts is that we don't ever get to interact with any of y'all listening right now. So to make up for it, we're going to do something special. Yeah, we are. Oh shit, I didn't know you were here. Me either. Is there anyone else here? Okay, so on 420, 9pm EST, Eastern Standard Time, we're going to be live talking about what, Nash? The history of... wait for it. Cannabis. Get on the bus. The cannabis. Get it? Get it? You know what? Never mind. We'll be live on our Twitch channel, our YouTube channel, and our Facebook page for some reason, and even our Twitter handle. You'll be able to comment along with us as we discuss the topic du jour. What? It's gonna be great. I'm gonna be the... I'm Matt... You have to tune in April 20th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, Twitter even. It's free, so if you're enjoying us, why not? The History of Cannabis. For our socials and the links for the event, jump on poorproles.com.
So just to paraphrase and sum this up a little bit, the Akahual is a managed, semi-wild transitional space where the selected species that are kept can produce food and materials, while the species that aren't particularly useful are chopped and dropped or burned into ash and biochar. It basically operates as a boundary between the concept of a cultivated field and that of the primary forest. It contains a species structure and biomass distribution that is different from both the forest itself as opposed to a natural, quote-unquote, successional process of a forest or the managed field. It's basically a human-driven ecotone. These types of ecotones are particularly useful in driving history of crops and weeds because it provides unique opportunities for things like genetic interchange and adaptive radiation. So adaptive radiation, is that your fancy way of saying localizing cultivars because you're basically creating new conditions that accelerate evolutionary diversity by creating new niches in your general locale? Yeah, like what we saw in Norway. And Japan. So despite it sounding like it's a really unique thing, it's actually incredibly tied to human existence and our interaction with our local ecology. So we're either fire beaver gods that bend nature to our will, or parasites that prep their hosts for better conditions. In a weird way, yeah. Fire beaver gods. Fire beat. You know what? You can have this one. I'm not saying No, it. I just had to say it out loud. I mean, I think it's a great idea for like a children's show, you know? I mean, I... I would let my kids watch that. Angry beavers, like bring bring that shit back, but they're but they're farmers. To get back to, I guess, this content that we're supposed to be covering that people listen to, let's talk a little bit about why this transition space is so important. Now, while it does supplement food for the milpa, its actual most significant importance isn't the food that it produces, but the fact that it essentially is a giant lure for selective animals. It's essentially like a managed wildlife area. Since it contains a high number of food sources that are not found as commonly in the forest, these areas attract incredible numbers of, well, animals. In fact, certain animals are found in significantly higher populations in these areas compared to like totally wild conditions. And in this process, humans have also helped accelerate this niche by utilizing trees like the balsa tree, for example, which creates massive amounts of biomass as well as Lancocarpus guatemalensis, which is a nitrogen-fixing native tree. So you couldn't save your fish jokes for the carp tree? I know. That's cool, Andy. I got it. No sense of timing. Biocarp? Biocharp? No. I like biocharp, actually. It sounds kind of cool. That's a Pokemon. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Go, biocharp, go! I don't know what they say. I've never watched it. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> so... Uh, if you think about it, though, it's like really a brilliant idea. They get a bunch of fruit trees, which they can eat. But like anyone that's got a fruit tree can tell you, I'm, you don't want to eat 300 pounds of apples. So what do you do with it? You feed livestock. And while that's not like wild by any stretch, it's really important to recognize the difference between like meat calories and fruit calories. Wild game is high in protein and fats, while fruits are great sources of sugars and fibers, but the primary driver of human diets is really around protein and fats. That's like the key component that we absolutely need more than anything else to exist on the earth. And while growing protein can be done, it, it's a little bit more difficult based on the crop variety that they have. And the fact is that we've only highlighted one nut tree that they really utilize. So these proteins from wild game are incredibly valuable. And this trade-off of like excess fruit for 
protein, even if the caloric intake shrinks, is like more than a fair trade. Even corn, although its protein quality is greatly improved by preparing it with as tortillas and supplementing it with beans, is still deficient in certain amino acids. For the traditional Maya people, this animal protein is provided in large part by the animals that feed in this space. These animals include the deer, the paca, the armadillos, possums, squirrels, rabbits, and a bunch of different birds. So as someone who is a former vegetarian. Oh boy. Saying, I, I don't know, just saying that last bit, like, you know what? Never mind. I'm just going to leave that one no, alone. No, go for it. Go for it. I don't know. Like, did you change your mind after, you know, over a decade, like 15 years of being a vegetarian? So part of why I am no longer a vegetarian is a piece of it was whether or not I felt I could be responsible for taking the life of something else to eat it. And when I decided I could do that myself, that was a big turning point. And like, obviously, in the modern civilized world, accessing those resources to be able to live without animal protein is like much more accessible. And it's easy to do when you're disconnected from a landscape in terms of like, you don't have to work the land to understand why animals are important for it or to think about that e ecological component of the, the circle of life. So that that was the big thing for me. You know, it's funny, like something that seems so important to you can dissipate so quickly when your mind changes like that. Right. And I, I didn't want to ask you and I'm not I wasn't trying to what's the word trying to say like you were putting your nose up at eating meat like you're better than or anything like that. I It's a personal choice. And I understand people make it. And I was just I never really knew your reasons why. And I just knew that you had switched one day and it was just strange to me, but I never really knew the whole story. So it all makes sense now. Yeah. I mean, it, it was an ethical decision that was based in the horrors of factory farming. And it's like, you know, you, we're talking like uh, at this point, almost multiple decades ago. And like uh, you think about like where the organic food and free range and all of these things were uh, that long ago, it, it's much it's much more of a different landscape where you can be more ethical about where your food comes from than you could back then. And as somebody that didn't have access to resources in college to go butcher my own animals or high school to butcher my own animals, then uh, that decision was very, I don't want to say easily made for me, but uh, was easier to be made for me. Right. Okay. So, well, thank I you. I haven't had myself an armadillo though yet. Thank you for sharing. And armadillos are, I've only had one encounter with an armadillo outside of like a zoo, like out in the real world. And I was pretty young in Texas, uh, living in Texas at the time. And my mom was doing 85 down some state highway. It was flat and hot and the heat waves were coming off the roadway. You couldn't really see where you're going. And she hit an armadillo, like hauling ass. It sounded like the car, like the entire front end of the car, like just fell and hit the road and the rest of the car just kept going. We were in it. That's what it sounded like. And then she finally pulled over and her rim was like fully cracked cracked and she looked back and the armadillo like rolled over and finished crossing the street like a boss <laughs> so those things are actual tanks they will fuck a camry up like no problem and uh they, they don't even they didn't even skip the beat he went and got lunch so much like the lock and don't you've given me some low-hanging fruit there was no armadillo yet again i set myself up for this i'm sorry to everybody oh that was beautiful i'm so proud He's actually crying. Uh, <laughs> he just wiped a tear from his eye. He's so proud of himself. I am so proud. So 
I guess to get back to these armadillos and so on. So what we're seeing is that they can utilize what's available for them to leverage that in different ways, whether it's feeding themselves or feeding the landscape and then feeding themselves by feeding the landscape. So there, there's a lot going on here. And on top of this, they do hunt outside of the secondary Akawal space. There's lots of forest around them. And all of that is still has these animals living in it. They don't live particularly just in the space where they're eating. They, they're wild animals. They travel. They can hunt outside of that space. But these animals are basically semi-wild because they're mostly dependent on human activities for food. So that sounds like a decent kind of livestock to have where you literally plant trees and let them do their thing, let them get enough food, and then you harvest and cull when you need to. Yeah. Or cull, cull and harvest first. And sometimes you don't even have to plant trees. You just have to, you know, cut back the trees you don't want. Even better. Now, one of the things that we see in these agroforestry system is basically the specialization of spaces. So we've seen that in this succession pattern. But there's also some very unique sites that they develop for certain reasons. And I hinted at this in the previous episode, one of which is called the pet cot, which is basically a form of woodland modification that was practiced up until pretty recently in various parts of Belize, although it does have a history across this entire region. So these lowland areas are areas that are primarily like more stony. And the pet cot creates these niches that support tall managed stands of trees that often contrasts greatly with the surrounding lower vegetation. These were developed in fields by basically accumulating all the stones of like a wide area, like five acres, and where especially useful species were cultivated as a protected forest ecosystem. By providing shade and windbreaks, they basically created these microenvironments in uh, generally more arid areas that could hold their own amount of water, produce more mist, and just basically like humidity and moisture in that general area. Is this similar to the terracing and creating more of those boundary spaces we talked about, um, like the Satayama in Japan? Not really. What they would do basically is grow plants there as a nursery that need very specific, you know, some, some trees will need very specific conditions to, to seed and germinate and grow. And then as they get older, they don't need those conditions as necessary anymore. So this would be like a nursery for rarer trees that are really important for food products. They would grow them in these spaces, and then they would move them to like their local home gardens. And this was basically a response to like the wild weather swings that they had experienced for like a thousand years. This was like their check valve for when things got really dry and like trees died and they needed some way to replace them quickly. Okay, so they used rocks and drier areas to create better conditions to grow things that wouldn't normally grow without some help. It sounds very similar to when you're growing cannabis, you have sort of a veg spot and then you plant it for them to do their flower thing. Did they make their own outdoor veg room for their important plants? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, in a way, like they're definitely creating a more humid environment for things that otherwise wouldn't grow and then moving them to someplace less humid where they'll grow anyway once they're already a certain size. It's almost like if you have like in New England, you have a fig tree. That fig tree can survive if you're like in 7, 7A, but it won't survive it's in 7A if it's only like two or three feet tall. You need to let it get bigger. So you might keep it in like a greenhouse that'll just keep it a little bit warmer until it's ready to go out there. And that's basically what they were doing. They were letting the trees get big enough. Gotta love that ancient tech. 
And uh, your fig tree, did, is it is it wrapped again this year or is it hanging tall? I honestly haven't wrapped it yet because it's been so crazy warm and I'm afraid it's going to stay too warm. So right now everything's kind of on the fence and I'm waiting to see what happens. But I should post about my fig tree on Tech Talk. Come on. I'm sorry. That was terrible. I'm... I'm... Go ahead. You can just make fun of me. I, I it's can't. Fine. I can't I let it, it go. I I have so many questions. So like Tech Talk is that like a video knockoff of TikTok, but with like ancient ancient farming practices, or is it like Tech Talk, like a TED Talk, but with like ancient farming practices? How about both? Just cover our bases. You're blowing my mind, man. Yeah, game game changer, visionary. That's what they say about me. Visionary. It was my vision. Yes. Another white man steals a black man's idea. God damn it. (laughs) So we've talked a bit about these managed spaces, but let's transition over to that primary forest, that unmanaged original forest. Now, these are also ecozones of real significant importance, not only because of the fact that wild game, semi-wild game, whatever you want to call it, they live there, but also because there are basically two different types of forest formations that exist, particularly in the La Candon region where we're focused right now. And that's the tropical rainforest and the lower montane rainforest. Mon- montane? Did you say mountain weird? So it's like the point on the mountain slope where the temperatures start changing the species makeup. We're talking about like the traditional tropical rainforests that are the primary states of the areas where these milpa exist. And the margins of these spaces are going into the mountains. Now, given the rugged terrain of Chiapas, the lower montane rainforest is actually much more common than your traditional tropical rainforest in this area. It's this type of primary forest that forms the primary environment for these subsistence systems. They're very similar to rainforest, but they don't have that massive 200-foot upper story that is really characteristic of a true rainforest. And these uh, lower montane rainforests, because they're at the bottom of the mountains with more topsoil, a little bit higher elevation, the plants that exist there are adapted to more well-drained conditions than your traditional rainforest. Okay, so it's sort of like a tropical rainforest that approaches the tree line and a mountainous region? Yep. It's got all the precipitation and humidity it needs for lots of vegetation and life down there. But I guess the rainy seasons come with, you know, precipitation coming over the mountains and all, all of that, like the mountain effects, precipitation and all of those things come into play with how it has sort of one summer and then a dry season and then a rainy season and then another shorter dry season. We sort of talked about that in the first episode, so I was just trying to wrap it back up. As far as I can tell, yeah, it's basically like a traditional tropical rainforest, but like slightly less diverse and slightly more dry. Now, given that similarity, there's a lot of things that can be harvested from this ecozone, you know, fruits and timber, but also nuts. And again, those resins and the benefit is that they're not managed. So you don't have to do a whole lot of work. You can just go in there and harvest things. And that raises a bigger question, I think, about the role of humanity in perpetuating the species there and not just perpetuating the species they want, but selectively propagating species over thousands of years and possibly even trying to push species into the periphery or even making them extinct so that the unmanaged forests eventually look in a way that they want them to. And that's entirely speculative, but as a white man, I I try to stay away from that. But the ability of everything around them to provide something is interesting, if not suspiciously coincidental. 
Right. Because what you're talking about is they're not just on the sites where they grow and manage their food, but even the primary forest is crucial to them. So they're going to, you know, play their hand and do their best to make sure that it's taken care of, right? Pretty much. Now, unlike any of the other traditional land management practices we've covered at this point in any of the episodes, we're going to take a quick look at aquatic site management. Not heavily, because obviously we're already on the second episode and we've covered quite a bit and we've got some other stuff to talk about and we're almost closer to the end of this episode. But I do want to talk about it and talk a little bit about some of the stuff we aren't going to cover because the Maya did so many things to feed their communities. There's no way for us to cover it in this short of a time period. Yeah, so basically we're going to go over everything. If there if there is anything that we didn't cover, check us out on Discord. I, I don't know. <laughs> hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac. And, and we're not the Poor Proles Almanac. You're right. We are tomorrow, today. And I'm Nash Flynn from Death and Friends. Tomorrow today is our chance to talk to folks about cutting-edge research that helps us understand what tomorrow looks like, but today. We've got exciting guests. And we'll speculate wildly about what the future looks like. Will the ocean currents slow down in your lifetime, leaving temperate climates decimated? Will we go to Mars? Will we drown in climate-induced ocean floods filled with microplastics? Will new research rewrite the history our children read? Will the sun... Is this going to be another Doomer question? No. Tomorrow, today, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, we at this point, we really haven't talked about like their housing how it's situated on drier uphill lands and how the housing was clustered with like small gardens, which took those trees from those basically wild greenhouses and the upland Ramon trees, which produced a substantial amount of like seeds to eat for protein. Also. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get it. I see what you mean. There's a whole lot that we didn't cover, but round it up, make a, let's make a few more points and, and, and get this going, buddy. All right. So the point is that these are really complex systems, and we are looking at a very small part of it. And each of these is based on very specific ecologies. It's not just this, but these people did this on lands with like terrible soil. And what's really impressive is that at the peak of the Maya, they were able to provide the caloric needs for a population density that was pretty similar to like most industrialized countries. Yeah, so that's what it's all about. How can we live and keep things going sort of cyclically without? killing the planet or using up all the resources that allow us to do that. Yeah. And ultimately not letting people die that don't have to. And the challenge here really is that these systems take time, generations, dozens of generations, really. I mean, we we're looking back at this as though it's the static thing that had always existed, but in reality, it was probably hundreds, if not thousands of generations that slowly evolved these systems to figure out exactly the right way to do it. And that was based on that place and time. And that system has to evolve because the ecology, the, the climate, all these things change. So it has to evolve with those things. There's no static way to do it. But what we do know is that they were able to. So we can. And that's why it's important for us to think about how what we do today not only feeds our kids and our grandkids, but multiple generations. So let's get into this water landscape management. Yeah, break it down, son. All right. The settlements traditionally have been located at like convergent points of usually several drainage branches of some kind of rivers or underground streams or things like that. What we find about the abandoned ruins of basically the classic and post-classic Maya occupation in these areas, which really reinforces the idea that this is 
a traditional system that has long been a principle of Maya settlement patterns. These aquatic terrestrial ecotones, meaning lakes and swamps and streams and riverbanks and shorelines, are another very important resource for these people. They not only directly supply humans with high-quality, protein-rich foods, but also support the grazing system by providing critical resources for, like, birds and other mammals that, you know, need water and salt and all these other things. These aquatic environments are special for a number of reasons. The nutrients that we keep talking about being pulled away from the milpa, those are leached from the forest and agricultural areas by that surface and subsurface waters. And those all accumulate in those rivers, lakes, and any real areas of lowlands that have poor drainage. So I tried this last episode and I'm going to try it again in this one. But is this the part where it's close, closer to those deltas and riparian zones we're talking about, where they end up being super nutrient rich because that's where it all ends up? Yeah. And I mean, why not take advantage of it? Yeah, it makes sense. So there's like the obvious food sources, you know, fish and the birds and ducks and reptiles and mollusks and turtles. But what's particularly interesting is how they utilize the other resources to get trace minerals. So we had talked a little bit about preparing corn and tortillas to essentially burn the corn through this process called nixmalization, which allows the corn to be more digestible. This is done using the burned and slaked shells of local river snail. In doing this, not only are they making the corn more digestible, but it also adds a bunch of calcium and other essential trace minerals that these people need, like all of us. Yeah, so I just sound like you're repeating yourself because we talked about that on the KNF episode with water-soluble calcium, except that was for plants. This is for humans, and it pretty much does the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I guess, but I'm just going to go ahead and unofficially say that there was an accident in this process and somebody threw in seeds instead of corn and that's how they made popcorn. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I mean, isn't popcorn just popped corn? So would it just be corn that got too hot? Like, I don't know. No, that's what I like, mean. I know it's you a... use oil when you make popcorn, but do you have to? It's a corn kernel. I don't... Yeah. Th I don't... You do What's have to... What's the difference to... between a corn kernel and a seed? Nothing. No, but I thought... Wait, What? Isn't a corn kernel and corn, like, are those the same thing? Yeah. Why they look different? So maybe they uh, grind it down. I don't know. I've never tried it. But yeah, so that they were util utilizing these, um, these shells to essentially supplement their calcium intake, which is like really cool considering they didn't understand what, you know, just like any other people, what exactly calcium was. And they're like, we should do this. They didn't have centrum vitamins and like multivitamins to just take yeah. in case they're not getting nutrients from their food. So they just did random stuff to make their food better. And this prevented, what's it called? Paralogous, I think, which is um, a deficiency in vitamin B, the niacin. So basically it free, frees up the niacin in the corn and allows your body to absorb that, which is very important. Yes. See, I'm super smart. I know what nixtamalization is. I read, motherfuckers. I know what's going on. You're showing me up. I had no idea of any of that stuff. Yeah. So uh, is there any evidence of them trying to physically cycle those nutrients back into their fields? Like, I know sometimes you talked about, like, if they live near the ocean, they'll bring, like, seaweed back and use that as their green manure to, like, supplement some of those nutrients and trace minerals. There's no records of it, or at least nothing that, about it happening today. That doesn't mean it didn't, though. Like I said, these, these practices have evolved over time, so we don't know what was being done and isn't being done anymore. 
I mean, you call yourself a white man, where's the wild speculation full of unjustified confidence? Sorry. Let me try that again. Absolutely. They obviously did this thing because... Duh. No, you're supposed to say that's what I would have done. Oh, because that's what I would have done as a learned white man. Better. Here to tell you. There you go. Better. You're doing great. I'm on my A game because, of course, I get an A. Somebody else told you. That's why. <laughs> yeah, so that's just like a very brief discussion of the water management. Uh, and obviously, we, we didn't go too deep into it. But water management's been super important for my Lowlands, like across the field. And what we don't know is basically a lot at this point. We do know that there was intensive sustained yield food production in much of the lowland water areas. And it was basically developed on like very sophisticated water control engineering. These water control systems included things from reservoirs and canals to retaining walls and even like chinampas, which are basically these mud piles that are made in in the swamps that they grow right on top of and often even need to use like little canoes and things like that just to get to the crops, which is like a really interesting idea. Yeah, they, they don't do that for weed. No, never. No, they totally uh, do. <laughs> there's lots of documentation of complex water control systems throughout the Maya area, including some even in Chiapas. But I don't think people really grasp the scope of these practices, even near these contemporary uh, Lacandon settlements. There's lots of evidence of water control through like artificial pools and canals between lakes that hold like hundreds of thousands of gallons of water, if not more. If we think about these engineering activities, the question that I come up with, like, given the fact that they had these like semi wild animals that they were feeding, were they doing the same thing with like aquatic animals, which would be much easier to control? You know, you put a fish in a pond, it's not going anywhere. Turtles probably would try to go and there's definitely evidence of them having fish and turtles and even crocodiles. The question to ask is really, did they do this even more intensively than they were doing like their semi-wild mammalian things that they were hunting? Yeah. And they figured out how to do all this without our little podcast project, learning about key lines and all that bullshit. They were croc farmers, baskers, if you will, because a basque is what you call a group of crocodiles. And I'm pretty sure they were herding the bastards. I really, really want them to be. Obviously they were, because we're speculating now, and I just said it, and that's what I would do. I, I think your skin is getting paler as I look at you. Like, that, that kind of confidence is just it's oozing out. My credit's just <laughs> creep creeping up. Yeah, your credit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, crocodiles are such a weird thing. When my daughter was like a year old, we would watch this little kid's like stupid video about crocodiles called El Cocodrilo Come Fa. And it was like this stupid song about like what crocodiles do and how animals talk, like a cat says meow and all that kind of stuff. But the the crocodile was basically like painted as this old British man who would like drink chamomile tea when he would get angry and then like wouldn't want to brush his teeth and had terrible teeth and was too stubborn to wear a coat when it when it was cold out and he would cry when he doesn't get his way. And like, that's kind of what I pictured. The Maya crocodiles are just like that. They're just like giant British man babies. <laughs> all out of all of that, all I thought of was the joke from Waterboy where Adam Sandler's like, Mama said crocodiles are so ornery because they got all them teeth, but no toothbrush. <laughs> yeah, crocs. They're nature's pet. No, crocs are a different <laughs> thing entirely. Yeah. Terrible shoes. 
terrible shoes. I've never had Croc shoes, so I can't I can't speak to that. You said shoes, right? Yeah, terrible shoes. Could you just I don't know. I see people wearing them barefoot and I just I couldn't do it. I feel like that would feel so awful after ten minutes. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I digress. Let's go back to Baskers. <sighs> okay, fine. Croc farmers. I guess we should probably wrap this up. Sorry, Croc fans. We'll do a dedicated crocodile episode someday. Crocs and Crocs? But it'll be a croc a while before we get there. Oh my god, just end the episode. (laughs) So we had mentioned that basically a lot of this is, what we know at this point is based on the traditional ecological knowledge from the descendants of the Maya in regions with this landscape, like the Lacandones. However, there is one historical example that we do have to point to. During a volcanic eruption around 600 AD over the village of Yoya. Hoya. Hoya? Hoya. Like H-O. Yeah, H-O-Y-A. Okay. Sorry. I I read things in Italian, or like my brain tries to do them in Italian, and it's like just slightly different, so then my brain gets very confused. I gotcha. Hoya de Seren, El Salvador, rapidly buried the community in ash, which preserved the homes and the gardens. In the community, the intensive milpa were exposed which showed the use of beans and squash and corn and cassava and cacao, among a bunch of other species. Now, what's interesting is that the water-sensitive plants were kept near the home, such as peppers and tomatoes. The archaeological project also exposed extensive buried fields of corn and cassava, which had been assumed to be a part of the system because it's, it is today, but there had been very little archaeological evidence before. Okay, so it sounds like the volcano revealed that things changed a little bit, but not too much. Yeah, the gardens around the homes are still a thing, but it seems today some of those water-sensitive plants have made their way into the milpa, which, again, might suggest a changing amount of rain and humidity, but that's entirely speculative. Let's fast forward a little bit to today. Although the population of the region has declined sharply following the disintegration of classic Maya civilization, there's approximately 30,000 Maya still inhabited the area. The Maya who survived the disease and disruption that followed Spanish conquest were forcibly removed from the Chiapas jungle during the 16th, 17th, and early 18th centuries and were relocated into Spanish-controlled villages on the jungle's western and southern fringes. Over the following hundreds of years, governments have continued to force these indigenous people further into the jungles while opening up the lands on the periphery to anyone basically willing to clear it. So I know we mentioned that this is close to Chiapas, but it sounds like these are the same indigenous folks that are involved with the Zapatistas. Yeah, in a broad scope, they are. Many of these folks, through both physical attacks and diseases, saw their communities decimated, and it forced them to consolidate into new communities that mixed many of these practices which had evolved based on very local conditions and you know, with various dialect differences and things like that. They had to coalesce in order to survive. Yeah, it just reminds me of the end of uh, the movie Apocalypto, Mel Gibson's fucking crazy-ass movie about the indigenous people. And then at the end, I'm not, well, you know what, I'm no spoilers. If you haven't seen Apocalypto, smoke a bunch of weed and watch it. It's a great way to kill some time. And uh, just, I don't know, it's crazy. It's, it's very entertaining. I liked it. Will I hate Mel Gibson more? He's not in it. He directed it, I think. Oh. So it's not, he's not in the movie, but it's violent like mel gibson can only do because he's a fucking psychopath but (laughs) yeah the movie is uh it's pretty good okay well i will i'll be suspicious of it and at some point try to watch it no you won't you don't watch fucking movies you have a list of movies from 30 years ago you've never seen 
listen, I've got a bucket list of movies and books that are like, I need to read these or watch them like this week. And that's been going since college. Knowing you, you're going to put water in that bucket and try to grow some shit to put in your plants. Something like that. So today, the Lacandon Rainforest is home to like half a million or so indigenous people, largely of that Maya cultural and linguistic affiliation. The Lacandone are the smallest of the Maya groups, but they do have a long history of continuous occupation of the lowland forest. Now, despite the efforts of both the Guatemalan and Mexican government, these people have continued to survive and will continue to survive. The only thing we can hope is that we basically shut our mouths and begin to listen to how these people have survived and maybe learn something. Yeah, it sounds like a good time for us to take our own advice and shut our mouths. And thank you for listening to this episode. I hope it was informative and insightful. I know I learned a lot about crocodiles not having toothbrush and loving chamomile tea. There are fire beaver gods. That's probably going to make it to a children's cartoon network in the future once I learn how to animate and draw a fire beaver god. All of this is canon now, just for the record. Oh yeah, it's it's here to stay. I don't know. What do you think? Did, did we miss anything? I know there's a whole billion other points you didn't make. We could turn this into a six-parter. I mean, we could go back to that squirrel. I mean, did he get the nut? I, I, I don't know. He found a nut, and then there were layered tubers under the snow because he was in a friggin' milpa. <laughs> yeah, we should wrap this up. Uh, so, anyways, my name is Andy, and did we ever introduce the podcast at the beginning? I think so. Yeah, you did. Okay. We did it really. Okay. We did it really quick because, like we said, we started in the middle of this episode. This is the Porpoise Almanac, and we we got more content coming for you. So much content. Stay tuned for more. Thank you for joining. Goodbye.